All right, so I'm going to read from Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Start out talking a little bit about the gospel. And 6 talks about uh, sanctification and about the gospel. And we're going to talk a little bit more about sanctification tonight. So starting in verse 1, Romans chapter 6, it says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For we have become united with him in the likeness of his death. That's such an an awesome word, that word united. We are united to Christ. He is our groom. We are his bride. It's absolutely amazing that we become united to him. We're going to talk more about unity tonight. Hey, what's up guys? We're in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, looking at verse 5. So we are united with him in the likeness of his death. Certainly, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. This is a Christian life, isn't it? But the life that he lives, he lives to God. This is what we are trying to do. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. This is the gospel. The gospel is that we are no longer under the law. We are united to the law, it talks about in Romans chapter 7, being united to the law. But here, this is saying you're not united to the law. You are not united to Jesus Christ when you become a Christian. So we're not a slave to sin anymore, right? We're not, because um, that's what the law, that, that you know, that we talk about there being three different purposes of the law. And two of them are really applicable to us. The first purpose of the law is to show us that we need a Savior. It's a, it's a, it's a standard that God has set, a perfect, holy, righteous standard, because God is perfect and holy and righteous. And we see that we can't do that. We see that that's impossible. And we know that in order to do that, in order to obey the law, we have to do it perfectly. We have to, because we're going to have to stand before God one day, and we have to stand before Him in a manner that is perfect. And we realize we cannot do that. So that's the first use of the law, is to say, well, I need someone in my place. I need someone who has lived a perfect life, and who has done this for me, so whenever I stand before God, 
Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, who died for me, whose blood was applied to my life, so now I'm considered holy before God. This is the gospel. So we're no, no longer, um, it says, sin shall not be master over you, for you are no longer under the law. That's that law that it's talking about, but under grace. We're under the grace of God, Jesus Christ, who died for us. Now we belong to him. And that's what this is trying to say. It's trying to say, you're now a Christian, so rather than just keep keep on you know finding yourself to be a slave under the law and letting that all that burden fall on your shoulders instead you need to rest in in God's grace and the way that God the way that he helps us to grow is to see what the second part of the law is that second use of the law which is now we're Christians now we're saved we belong to Christ and so the law is what helps us to grow in our sanctification. And that's what this is talking about. Verse 15 says, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for, for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death, or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Well, that's, that's an amazing thing. We've been freed from sins, and now we're slaves to righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your weakness, the weakness of your flesh, for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So this, this is a summary of the gospel and how that Jesus Christ has set us free. He's, he's caused us to become who that we were created to be, right? Who we were created to be. We were created to be people who glorify God. And so the way that we do that is we start to learn how to grow in our sanctification. And we, we often fail. And that's what the next chapter talks about, chapter 7. Paul starts, he starts stumbling over basically... Um, his own life and his sin nature and he understands in chapter 7 the next the next chapter that that he still has a sin nature that keeps wanting to draw him back pull him back into the world right but he also on the other hand says I've been set free from these things so the things that I that I want to do I don't do he says and the things that I don't want to do I do and so he's struggling he's wrestling with with the flesh he's wrestling with these things so we know that we live in a constant state of warfare and that's what sanctification is there's always something that's drawing us inwardly that's wanting us to to draw back into the law or into into being selfish really is what it what it is 
and pride and all these different things that tries to pull us away from God and the holiness of God and being external and and thinking about how the God is the author and finisher of our faith, right? God is the one who saved us and we are the one we should be blessing him and praising him and worshiping him and that's one of the things that's amazing to me is just understanding what worship is worship isn't just music right it's not just song but worship is everything it's the way that we live it's the way that we that we talk it's the decisions that we make it's the preaching of the word on sunday morning there's so many aspects of worship and that we worship God through everything that we do and that's how that we learn to grow in our sanctification but it's amazing that we can't do that if we if we don't have the blood of Christ applied to us first and that's the gospel that we are no longer under the law that whenever we become Christians that Jesus Christ his blood and perfect righteousness is imputed to, to us and we can stand before God and we're righteous we're righteous and that's what this is saying that we are righteous it tells us this again and again and again and righteousness isn't necessarily the way that we feel right we're so driven to be um, to to let our actions follow our emotions sometimes right sometimes we're we just respond to our emotions and there's not a lot of times in life that I feel like I'm righteous even though the Bible tells me again and again and again I am, right? It's understanding, that's understanding the gospel. It's understanding I am righteous, but it's not because of anything that I did. It's not because I was obedient to the law. It's not because of anything other than Jesus Christ who imputed his righteousness to me. So now I can live free. I can live free, right? And the freedom that I live, the freedom that I enjoy is to draw closer to God and get further away from this flesh that keeps wanting to destroy me, right? But instead be free to worship God the way that he's called us to do. So that's the gospel. That's the thing that we always want to start out with. I love Romans. Romans is, um, there's so much deep stuff in here that, that I just love to to pull out and think about. So um, any thoughts or comments on the gospel before we jump into our study? And this will kind of tie in a little bit to our study on sanctification and a couple of things that we're going to pull in in unity. Okay. Well, we're on page 62. Page 62. And we've been talking about the omniscience of God. And if you remember last week, we spent quite a bit of time talking about open theism and um, and how that that view it really distorts the character of God even though they're trying to preserve the character of God because what it does is it creates an idol it makes God out to be something that he is not and we talked about why that that different theologies like this exist and they exist always really to defend God's character, A, and usually they have to do with human free will. And human free will always is, is a battle, it seems. No matter where you're at. All throughout church history, there's been battles on human free will. Exactly how free is the human free will, right? And so, <clears throat> open theism made some, some pretty good analogies. They, they connected some dots together, even though they incorrectly... I would say they connected the wrong dots together, but they they connected some things together that sometimes that we don't think of, and they 
they said, well, if human beings are really free and they really have autonomy and we're free to be independent, make our own decisions, well, then God cannot know the future. Because if God knew the future, then that future would be determined, right? So if God, if I say, well, God, I'm going to raise my hand, and God knew that I was going to raise my hand, then according to them, then God had to predetermine that I raised my hand, right? So they, they started making these connections and saying, well, we can't really truly be, be free, so God, he must not know the future. He must just know up till this second. And he doesn't know uh, what the next second is going to be or what's going to happen the next second. And we talked about that le last week and how that that was a, a fallacy and it was a, an idol that leads to some pretty bad consequences if you really follow them all the way through. And pretty much all these wrong theologies will do that. And they all kind of have that, that, that same theme in common. And so we've kind of been working our way through that and talking about how God truly is omniscient. He truly knows everything. And he's, he's outside of time. And the way that I like to, th to think of the omniscience of God is I like to think, you know, we know that we are creatures that were created in time and space. Well, God's the one that created the time and space, right? He's outside of that time and space. So we can say that God is omniscient because he's omnipresent at every moment of every time period all at the same time, right? So God is just as present with Adam and Eve as he is with us. He's just as present in the book of Revelation with the Antichrist and all the things that happen as he is right now because he's outside of time. So he sees everything, he's in control of everything, and... He's also omni, um, he's omniscient and omnipresent. And all, we talked a little bit about how that open theism com combated all the omnis um, and tried to, to say that, that God was none of these things because if he was, then we wouldn't have free will. And so that, that's basically what it all boils down to. So... We made it through, we're about halfway down on page 62. That was just a kind of a summary of what we went over last week. Um, we started talking a little bit also about uh, God having perfect self-knowledge within the Trinity, and we're going to kind of expand on that tonight. So the next point says, God the Father has never told Jesus, I have already done that, or I wish you wouldn't have done that. <laughs> I don't know if this, this sounds familiar to you, uh, being married, <laughs> but that's what's so interesting about, about marriage, is marriage is supposed to be, uh, it's supposed to be a shadow of the relationship that we have with Christ, but also the, the way that Christ is perfectly united in the Trinity, and we've talked about how, we, we read this in Romans, about how that we are united to Christ. We're united to our spouses, too, right? And so this is an imperfect, um, it's a foreshadow, kind of an imperfect example of being united to Christ um, in, in the marriage ceremony, in, in, in the way that we, in, in the ceremony and the vows that we take, it's all kind of, it shows this oneness of how that we are no longer two independent people, but now we've become one um, but the difference between being married to our spouses and the unity that we see in the Trinity is the unity that we see in the Trinity is perfect, right? They don't ever 
they know exactly what everybody's doing. What you know, Jesus knows what God's doing at all times, and there's no surprise parties we talked about last week. And it's a it's a little bit different with us. And the only thing sometimes these to, these type of concepts are hard for us to understand because we are married, right? And so we know what it's like um, to be united to someone who sometimes we disagree with. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And talking about sanctification that we was talking about here in, in Romans chapter six is is marriage is a huge part of our sanctification. It really is um, because we enter marriage with this idea of of what it should be like, or what we think it's going to be like, or what our spouse ought to be like. We have these ideas and these the sometimes very. Um, far-stretched ideas <laughs> of who our spouses should be and so when we're disappointed in our spouses then uh, then sanctification begins right sanctification begins it truly does um, and what happens is uh, that sin nature it it demands an inward draw right we talked about that here and our pride is is really aroused right whenever we deem an injustice has occurred to us whenever something happens and we say well that's you know she shouldn't treat me like that or he shouldn't treat me like that then what it, what this does is exposes something about us it exposes really that we're selfish is really what that exposes um, but and and I'm guilty of that too I think we all are but that's hard for us to admit but this is something that we we can see in ourselves and so when we think of unity um, we have a, an imperfect example because of the way that, that our lives interact with one another. But when it comes to the Trinity, um, they're perfectly united. They share everything together, and there's no... Jesus never has to say, I wish you wouldn't have done that, right? There's always... Um, there's, there's perfect uni unity in the Trinity, perfect unity in the Godhead. And that kind of filters into our perfect unity with Jesus whenever we become Christians. So now that we're that we belong to Christ, we're perfectly united to God. We're perfectly united to Jesus. And um, and we this this is one of the things that that helps all of us, I think, in marriage is to to understand that unity and and what it it represents and and how that it it exposes some of the things in our lives that we should be working on. Just like the book of um, Romans is saying be, that we should be working on our sanctification. But God doesn't have to work on his sanctification, right? He's perfect. He's perfect. And speaking of unity, God knows, all, the next point says, God knows all things outside of himself perfectly. So God knows you perfectly. He knows every person that's ever lived on this planet perfectly, even the numbers of hairs on our head, the Bible says, which is getting fewer and fewer. But, um, but this is something that can be, it can be, it can be something that's, that's exciting and joyful, but it's, it sometimes can be something that is, um, is, it can be scary too. And it really depends on our conscience, doesn't it? It, it, that's one of the, the things that's, that's so amazing about the Holy Spirit who indwells us and gives us um, 
this conscious this this understanding of sin and and whenever we are out of favor with God and he's the one that convicts us of our sins and shows us these things and so that's amazing that that God loves us enough to do that because the thing that that separates us the thing that breaks unity between us and Christ which it's never truly broken but there's these patches right where um, that we sin and we're and the Holy Spirit exposes that because that sin is a separation between us and God even though we're we're Christians we're the blood of Christ has been applied to us we are never cast out but you know what you know you know how that your your conscience can can cause you to be um, a person who isn't living in freedom, right? This freedom from sin, this freedom to do what God has called you to do, which is to glorify Him. So if we come to church and we have a guilty conscience because there's something that we've done, which happens, it seems like, on Sunday mornings, don't it, sometimes? Only when there's serving communion. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. Only when there's serving communion. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes we come to church with the, and, and I know that you guys know what I mean, that you can come to church and you just don't feel like worshiping because you have this this conviction that's upon you, you know. And there's other times you come and you just, you live in freedom. And, that, and so seeing, it, it's amazing that God has given us the Holy Spirit that, that keeps keeps pointing these things out so we can be more and more and more and more united to Christ, right? That's the that's the process of sanctification and growing in sanctification. So I've got a verse here, Job thirty seven sixteen. Um, I'm gonna have probably a couple people read these. So Jacob, would you read this? Job thirty seven sixteen, and this is um, this is some of Job's friends that are giving him bad advice, talking, but sometimes. Even his friends say something that is really good, good advice. And this is one of the things that uh, um, Elihu speaks to Job and, and is really good advice. So Job 37, 16. Do you know about the layers of the thick clouds, the wonders of one perfect in knowledge? The wonders of one perfect in knowledge. Perfect in knowledge. That's important. Psalm 147 Five. Sean, would you read that? Great is our <clears throat> great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. His understanding is infinite. It's infinite. So God's mind isn't limited, right? It's infinite. He does not forget. So God remembers every detail of everybody's life. Every detail. He remembers every detail of Adam and Adam and Eve's life and everything that happened with them and every person who's lived in history all the way to the end, right? And in understanding this, understanding that he is infinite in knowledge, that he knows everything, that his, his knowledge is perfect, I've got a question that says, what does it mean that God remembers our sins no more? What does that mean? Just that he doesn't hold it against us. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that he doesn't hold it against us. The, bu the Bible says that our <coughs> sins is as far as the east is from the west. In other words, 
How far is the east from the west? <laughs> there is no end, right? It just keeps going. And so that's the way that God sees our sins when the blood of Christ is applied. He, he remembers them. I mean, he's infinite in knowledge. But he chooses to forget them because of the blood of Christ that has been applied to us. And so now we can live the way in the freedom that we've been talking about. Page 63, that God has revealed that God is revealed as light throughout the scripture not only calls attention to his holiness but to his omniscience light reveals all things there is no darkness nothing hidden in light this is one of the things that I always try to because you know the Bible talks about God being light so much and one of the that's one of the things that I always try to picture is what does light do you know what what and, and it's so easy for us to see to understand that um, and we know that, that Satan lives and works in darkness. That's where he does his work. That's where Satan hides, is in the darkness. And so God comes in, this book right here, right? This book is what exposes, it opens, it turns on the light bulb, and it exposes everything, just like it, that Paul was talking about in Romans. It exposes the sins, it exposes the work of Satan, it exposes... The way all this darkness, you know, that that comes in against us and tries to draw us back into ourselves or away from God, right? And so um, <clears throat> that's something that's really cool that, that that this light is exposing everything, and this is showing that God sees everything. He's He sees everything. There's nothing hidden. There's no dark corner that we can hide in um, to to try to hide our sins from God. You know, there's no place that we can retreat to. And it's so, we're so, sometimes we're, we're strange people, you know, and we forget this. We think, oh, well, you know, I can do this at home and nobody sees me. <laughs> and we can get by with it. And, and we, we understand that God's there. We know that. And so it, it's so, the way that, that that's the sin nature works inside of our minds sometimes is mysterious. <laughs> it really is. But we know that we can't escape from God. But for some reason we want, we're scared of the eyes of men and, you know, and, and people. So we want to hide these things like we're, nobody knows, nobody knows what I'm doing, right? Um, God knows. There's no place. Next point says, God is eternal and his knowledge is eternal. Everything that he knows, he has always known even before he created time. So, God, he doesn't know some things better than he does other things, right? We are finite. Uh, he's infinite. So there's some things that I know better than than some of the people in this room. Electricity is probably one of them. I'm a master electrician. There's other people in this room that knows things much better than me. But there's nothing there's nothing in God's mind that that he's lacking. There's not something that he knows better like me. I know electricity better, you know, than some people do. Um, but I don't know car mechanics or psychology or you know or other things like that, you know, or pharmaceuticals you know I don't know I don't know that and so God has there's no areas of blindness with God he knows everything perfectly and and to 100% maximum level right that's that's the way that God knows and sees things Romans 11 33 through 34 Steve did you read that 
Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor? Yeah, such a good verse. Uh, Isaiah 40, 13 through 14. Cody? What? Read for me. Uh, who has directed the spirit of the Lord, was, or as his counselor has informed him, with whom did his counsel, or and who gave him understanding, and who taught him in the path of justice, and taught him knowledge and information, him of the way of understanding. Oh yeah, this right here where it says and taught him knowledge, you guys need to underline this because we're we're going to talk about something here in just a second with this middle knowledge. So, who's taught God, right? And who's taught him knowledge? Who's taught him knowledge, right? All right, Proverbs 5.21. Victor? For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all in his paths. Is that a comforting verse to you? It really, it is. It really is. It really is. It's, it's, it's comforting. It's a comforting thing. Um, the next point says, God never has to calculate a process. He already knows every result. And so this, I brought this up because um, we're going to talk about middle knowledge. You know, middle knowledge is something that's a little bit different than open theism, but it's similar. It's, it's similar. Um, and, you know, I talked about how that I was surprised at how widespread that open theism has become. Um, I'm really surprised at, at how widespread that this, uh, it's called Molinism, has become. Molinism. Uh, and, uh, it's M-O-L-I-N-I-S-M, if anybody wants to write it down. We're going to talk about it some more when we get to the sovereignty of God. But uh, M-O-L-I-N-I-S-M. There's people, there's pastors in in this area, that if I named their names, you would know them. And they are Molinist. Um, I, I've had conversations personally with some of these guys. And, um, and I'm always a little bit amazed that people hold to, to some strange views. But uh, what's the, the difference between um, Molinism and open theism is, is they, Molinists believe in what's called middle knowledge. Middle knowledge. And so, middle knowledge, it teaches that God is reactionary, okay? Um, he's reactionary, uh, and what he does is he runs these various calculations, and knowing the ending of every scenario, he chooses the correct outcome, or the correct, correct action. So, uh, you know, we talked about how open theism was a grid, right? But God really didn't can see he sees possibilities that's all he sees he can't really see the future but he sees possibilities and he tries to steer things in this grid right um, Molinism they say well God does know the future but the future that God sees is an endless beret of um, of calculations and there's many different things that possibilities of things that could happen and so what God does is he, 
he can see into the future. He can see all these different things, and he he chooses one. He says, "I think I like this one," and so he's, he's going to try to take everything down this path. So that's that's the the difference really between open theism and middle knowledge is really uh, omniscience. Um, middle middle knowledge believes in in God's omniscience. It's just that there's all these different things that he sees in the future, right? We're open theism, he, he can't see anything in the future, right? He just up to the second. So that's basically the, the, t- the different things. But in this view of middle knowledge or Molinism, God is influenced by something, right? He's influenced by something outside of himself. Now, is that dangerous? Yeah. So God is influenced by something outside of himself. So why is it wrong to say, this is the question, why is it wrong to say that God is influenced by something outside of himself? Um, he changes mind or, you know, thing, he, doesn't, he doesn't know what he's going to decide or something. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> it is. I mean, then he's not perfect? Yes, that's right. That's right. And he's not sovereign. And he's not sovereign. Yeah. Yeah, those are all good responses. Those are all good responses. Yeah, yeah, and this is this is why that um, that I, I can't hold to this view. And Molinism, the next point here says Molinism is an attempt to bridge the gap between Arminianism and Calvinism, but creates an even worse problem that God isn't sovereign, and God isn't omniscient. And we're going to talk more about Molinism when we get to the sovereignty of God. So Arminianism, we're going to talk more about Arminianism too, because that's a word that's easy for me to spit out because so many people know what Arminianism and Calvinism is, but there's a lot of people that don't really know either. Um, we're going to get pretty deep into what each one of these things are once we get to the sovereignty of God. Yeah, but basically, um, Molinism, Arminianism, Arminianism, Arminianism is, uh, it, again, it, it has to do with, with the freedom of, of the will, uh, whether God, um, whether the human free will has been tainted by sin, which is what Calvinism teaches, but we make a distinction in theology, and we say that, that Adam was created in a state of probation, and I, and I think that's correct, that he was, he, he could either fail God, or he could choose to do right. We, we, according to Romans 5, have been our, now that, you know, that Adam was our federal head, and we're born of his seed, then his seed, his, his nature, his sin nature was imputed to us, right? And so, Arminianism would say, no, it's not. Arminianism would say um, that, you know, we, we have to be free creatures. We have to have autonomy, 100% autonomy. Um, and so all these views really have to do with, with human free will. And there's a, right, there's a right way to view human free will. And we'll get into that, but we're not going to get into it now. We'll get into it when we get to the sovereignty of God. But I'm just trying to explain to you what each one of these things mean. So, that God knows everything should be both encouraging and convicting to us. So this is something, too, I think I've mentioned a couple of times. How, how is it encouraging to us that that God sees everything? How is that encouraging? I guess we know we're not alone in that situation. 
Yeah. And then he's already seen what the outcome, and he's been there, and he's there with us, and it's comforting that we're not alone. Yeah, that's right. That's good. Because a lot of times people misjudge our intentions too, don't they? So it's comforting. I mean, how many times has somebody misjudged your intentions? You know, it happens all the time. Sometimes we have really good intentions, and somebody sees it as us doing something wicked. But God sees it perfectly. God knows our intentions. He knows the intentions of our heart, even whenever people don't. Right? That's comforting. That's comforting that when you get rebuked by somebody, when you're doing something to try to glorify God or trying to do something good, you know, even though people are rebuking you for it, God loves you for it. He's there. He sees it. He knows that you want to, that you're that you're honoring Him and you're glorifying Him, even in the face of adversity. Right? That's comforting. That's really the only thing comforting in that situation when you're getting rebuked for doing something good, is knowing that God loves you and He knows that. He sees that. Right? Is there anything else? Well, we don't have to worry about our individual futures at all because God already knew it before the world was even created. Yeah. And, you know, has already worked it out. Yep. Yep. Yeah. In what ways should it bring conviction to us? In what ways um, are we convicted by God seeing everything? We can't trick him. Like, (laughs) trying to get away with something. That's true. Kind of the reverse of what you said a minute ago. Sometimes people think we're doing things for better motives than we really are, and God knows that too. Yes. That's one of the things that's um, the scariest for musicians is when you get up in front of people, you know, you want to make sure that your heart is right. And sometimes it, it may not be. And then when you get off stage and some somebody comes up and they're trying to encourage you and they're like, oh, you're so good, you did such a good job. And, you know, they're trying to... But I've been, I've been in those situations, and I know anybody that plays mu- music, on, on, especially in church, um, where you're just like, you know, my heart just wasn't right, you know? And so it can bring conviction, you know? People see, you know, oh, you did an amazing job, and they're trying to... But inside, you're just going, oh, you know, there's, there's sin, there's things that you, you just would have known what I just said to my wife, you know, in the car ride on the way here, or whatever it is, you know. There's, there's this God, you know, and, and it's so easy for people to go, yeah, you're right, I am good, you know, and pride just to kind of, you know, just start building up, and you're like, hey, you know, everybody tells me I'm a great drummer, you know, so I must be good, you know. And God is looking and, and seeing that pride. And it should be bringing conviction because of the ugliness that's inside, right? We should see that pride <laughs> instead, of it, instead of it bolstering us up. But yeah, you're right. And there's many examples. There's so many examples where um, that sometimes we want to be something. You know, we really want to be, we want everybody to think that we're something. We want everybody to think that we're great. And that's pride, right? That's pride. And God sees that. We can't hide from that.
Is there anything else? Any other thing that comes to mind? I think it just like kind of holds us accountable for our own actions. We want to be true to ourselves, and yeah, that's kind of what I think. It holds me accountable to right and wrong and things like that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, we can we can put on masks. We can put on um, things that deceive people at work, our spouses, at church, especially at church, you know. Um, and God can see through all that. He can see that He knows who we truly are. And if we're in Christ, you know, like I said, we need to start to see ourselves as being righteous, as being redeemed. And we need to, to take responsibility. And that's what um, the Bible so wants to do, is, is point out that we need to take responsibility for our sins and not 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 set in the service and go, man, I'm glad that Bob's hearing this message. <laughs> you know, I'm yeah. glad he's over he's there. Got a, he's got a pride problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I know we've all done that. But that's, you know, to, to that, that's why there's always this war that's going on, right, inside of us. There's always these things that, that that's happening, the spiritual warfare. And... But it's so encouraging to know that God, He's there and He sees it, and He sees us, and He loves us. Mm-hmm. He loves us despite our pride, despite all these things, despite the way that we sometimes act and sometimes treat others. <coughs> he still loves us, and He still embraces, and He's still calling us to Himself, and still helping us to grow in sanctification and learn these things, right? So it's, it's, re- it's, uh, it's an amazing thing to be a Christian. It really is. 1 Samuel 16, 7. Any volunteers to read that? I'll read it. Okay. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. God looks at the heart. The question says, why is it good that God looks at the heart of Christians, and why is it bad that God looks at the heart of the world? And I think I could qualify that where it says bad. It's not bad that God does it. It's bad for them, right? We're talking person on, on a personal level. And I think we've already explored some of this. You guys can can throw something in there if you if you if something jumps to, jumps to mind, but. Is there anything else that comes to mind? I think when he looks at the heart of a Christian, he's like uh, maybe a keeper of a vineyard. He's looking at what needs to be pruned and mm. what needs to be nurtured. And, you know, it's uh, it's about growth and sanctification. And when he looks at the heart of the world, he sees something rotten and putrid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Rebellion, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, he looks at our, uh, you know, the Bible says that that he's taken our heart of stone and given us a heart of, of flesh. He's given us something, that, he's taken something dead and give and, ma- and given it life, right? And so when he when he sees us, what, what's given us life? What's, what's caused that change? And of course, it's the indwelling Holy Spirit. So our hearts should continually as a Christian it, uh, we should continually be <coughs> wanting to, to pursue 
glorifying God, right? That's that's that quest that we're on. We're always wanting to pursue Him and pursue Christ's likeness, and God sees that. And a true Christian is going to kind of fill that draw. That's you know we already talked about conviction. We have conviction whenever we sin, and that's to to try to 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 pull us back into doing what we should be doing, right? To glorifying God. So God should see a, a heart. Even though it's not perfect, even though it fails, even though we're constantly are falling on our face like Paul does, he still knows that we're in this trajectory of wanting to honor him and glorify him. Yeah, we make mistakes. We make a lot of mistakes. Some more than others, like me. <laughs> but God sees a heart that, that's, that's reaching for him, right? That's, that's, what, that's, that's the way that it should be. And when he looks at the heart of the world, he sees a heart that, that doesn't do that. Right, it doesn't do that, and that's why that we want to tell people the gospel. Psalm one thirty nine one through four. Danielle, would you read that? Sure. O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down, and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all. Yeah, and the next point here says God knows the worst about us and still loves us. He knows the worst about us and he still loves us. And this is amazing that it's something that I you know God's love is really one of the things that's incomprehensible for me. It's so beyond my ability to to, to grasp. The God being omniscient, knowing everything. He knew before he created Adam and Eve what was going to happen. He knew that Adam and Eve was going to rebel. You know, these little creatures that God made, they're going to raise their fist and say, I want to be you. I don't care about what you've given me. I don't care about this entire planet. You know, I don't care about this beautiful woman that you've made for me. I don't care about these beautiful trees and beautiful animals and all these things that you created for me to enjoy, they don't matter. I want to be you. You know, that's what Adam did, Adam and Eve. And so God knew that. He knew that they were going to do that. They were going to rebel against him. He knew that Jesus would have to take on the nature of man and come and die in order to make all this mess right. And he still, he still created us. He still created this planet. He still created everything and set this whole thing into motion. What kind of love is that? That is a love so far beyond what I can understand. Because, you know, if, if I was omniscient and I knew that something was going to, to rebel against me and cause me pain and cause me to have to die for this little thing that I made, I would run from that thing. There's no way I would make it. You know, but God loves us that much that He created us knowing this. This is why that the omniscience of God is so important, and all these views that we've been looking at it just destroys this, destroys it. And so it's so important for us to 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 know what God truly is, and He is omniscient, mm -hmm. and um, and that's an amazing thing. That's what we're all about is is having a big view of God, right? Small view of man, big view of God. That's what we're all about. So, <clears throat> um, the next point, last point says, He knows our temptations, sorrows, pains, 
joys and all that we face in life and he cares and he is there with us through them all through them all any last thoughts on that or last comments before we jump into our questions all right these should be some easy questions question number one what is open theism does anybody remember that doesn't know the future yeah and it's um, basically exists to make him look good. Yeah. You know, that um, when there's tragedy and stuff like that, but, yeah. Yeah. Not yeah. his fault. He didn't know. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. He didn't know. He was shocked that that right. happened. Yeah. The next question says, have you ever held to a theology you believed defended God's character that was wrong. Have you ever held to a to some doctrine or some theology because you you wanted to defend God in a, in, a, in the way that you wanted him to be? I have. I can say that. I think we all have to agree. Keep that law. Yeah. Yeah. What did um, what did you think of what did you think when you was in that in that kind of legalistic environment? Um, what was your view of the character of God? Um, I mean, I I always have felt that God was you know amazing and this untouchable being, but um, and I wanted to please him, but um, you know I never really thought about, I, you know, that it was arrogant to think that I could, you know, somehow I could obey the law and and discounted what Christ did, like, like that didn't even, I didn't even dawn on me that that was something that was needed. Yeah. Did you, did you, because I, because you know, we have kind of a similar background. I came from kind of a legalistic background as well. And sometimes, some of my view of God was, I think I had an over, um, I think, I think I had, I think I overemphasized his justice, you know. And I think a lot of people in that background does, kind of like God's just got a big stick waiting for you to mess up, you know. Got his finger on the smite. Yeah, <laughs> his finger on the smite button. That's great. Yeah, yeah. Did you ever feel that way? That's kind of the way I felt. I kind of felt like God was just—he's—he's um, he's loving, and I, I was amazed by him and all those things. But, I, like you said, his—you know—I'm just not measuring up to what that he wants me to be, and he's gonna hit me over the head with that <laughs> stick or use the smite button at any time. <laughs> you know? That's that's kind of the, the background that I had. Anybody else had anything that distorts the character of God? And then you've discovered later that um, that God's much bigger <laughs> than what than what I thought that he was. And much more amazing. When I was a kid I was I kind of deduced it, okay, I don't think anybody came out and said the words. Um, it was in a conversation about 
why you go to hell if you commit suicide. Mm -hmm. And what I was told was, well, you can't repent right then. You know, you die and then you can't repent, so you go to hell. And I took that to its logical conclusion mm -hmm. that if there was any sin that I committed that I was maybe unaware of or that I forgot about and I didn't repent, that my my future was in hell. Mm -hmm. And so I became really obsessive about, you know, praying constantly, God, please forgive me of any and everything. And there was no peace. I mean, it was another version of the angry God that sets you up. The angry God that sets you up for eternal damnation. And that is such a distortion of what he did for us. Yeah. It is. Yeah. yeah. That's what's good is to is to take because you can take all these different views and different different characters, and that's what I try to do, um, and and to take them to their logical conclusion. Because that's thinking people are gonna do that. And that's that's one of the things that that this class is about is trying to teach everybody to think critically about things and, uh, and that's why that I bring up views that are wrong I think it's good for us to, to critically examine things critically look at things and learn how to take things to their logical conclusion um, that way we can say well if I really take that all the way to the end then that distorts some things that it says in this book, right? And so we want to be drawn back and make sure we're connecting the right dots. And that's what it's all about, is trying to, that's, you know, the and the more that we know about God, the more that there is to love about Him. Mm -hmm. And what's so amazing is these wrong views, like in my mind that I had of God, whenever I learned the right views, they were views that I thought when I was in that, and kind of legalism, I thought that if I believed that, that my my view of God would diminish. You know, you have this, so you really are kind of fighting for that character of God. But what's amazing is when you learn the truth about God, the very thing that you thought was going to diminish the character of God, it magnifies Him, and it excels your your love and your appreciation of Him, and who, who He is and what He's done for you. So that's something that, that's amazing too. Next question says, what is middle knowledge that Molinism holds to? Do you remember that one? That one's a little bit trickier, a little bit nuanced to open the theism. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, open theism teaches that he can't see the next second, right? But Molinism teaches he can see into the future. But instead of being sovereign and in control, a straight line, we talked about a straight line last week. Instead of everything being a straight line, he sees all these branches in the future and he kind of picks which one he likes the best, right? And he, he's like, he starts wanting to, to take things that direction, right? And so that's, that's the, the view of Molinism. This question's kind of tricky. Why is it wrong to believe that God can learn something and this pulls this comes into his omniscience his all the knowingness why is it wrong to believe that God can learn something any thoughts on that 
It's a tricky one. Well, I'm thinking that he doesn't really know my path. Like he's, he might learn something new about me. Like, oh, I didn't know she'd make that decision. You know, so he doesn't really have my future in his hands. Right. If that's the case, if he could learn something like about me, for instance. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Any other thoughts? He was either wrong or ignorant a minute ago. <laughs> <laughs> and now he's learned something. Yes. So he wasn't perfect. He wasn't mm-hmm. Or are we going to learn something before he does? Yeah. yeah. Right. That's right. That's a good point. He goes back to where I told you to underline over here under Isaiah 40, 14 and taught him knowledge. So if God learned something, what did he learn? I mean, who did he learn it from? He had to learn it from something else. Which would make him, what, not God, right? God could not be God if he learned. Because there would be something teaching him. Or something that he discovered. Something that you decided which would make you God. Because you taught God. You gave him that knowledge, right? So you'd be sovereign. You would, God wouldn't be God if, God if God had to learn, right? He wouldn't be God. So there would be something outside of his control. Something that you controlled, right? You controlled. You control God, <laughs> right? So he learned from you. Yeah. So if knowledge directs God, then who directs knowledge, right? So yeah, that th- these are all good points. These are all good points, and I, th- and I think it's good for us to think about things like this and and just consider because it does. It does magnify our view of God and who He is and what He's done, and the fact that that He gives us the time of day. <laughs> is that not just amazing that He loves us so much? I mean, it's 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 amazing. And here we are. We're the finite, and we're just wrestling to get to know Him. We're 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 doing everything that we can to get to know God and who He truly is, so we can love Him in a greater way. And I think that that I think that. Um, that this is something that God is pleased with. I think He's pleased that we are are grasping to know Him, that we want desperately to know everything that we can find out about Him. That's how we love our spouse, right? Mm-hmm. That's how that we love people in our lives. We get to know them. This is how we know God. We start learning about Him. We talk about Him. We explore these things. We look at wrong views, and we look at right views. We look at things that the Bible tells us about Him. All right. Well, very good. We're out of time. Any uh, last thoughts or comments?